guys can have a seat. How are we doing today? Good? I need a little bit more than that. Okay, how are we doing today? Praise the Lord. I uh, hope you're well. Uh, for those who are with us online, we're glad you're with us today. We're going to jump right into uh, chapter 2. We're going to finish chapter 2 in 2 Corinthians. Last week, uh, we saw Paul addressing his critics head on. Uh, he was communicating why he changed his plans, which caused his critics to criticize him uh, and to lose trust in him. They thought he was kind of waffling back and forth, uh, and he, they thought that Paul couldn't make up his mind. But Paul defended his integrity and trustworthiness uh, while giving us a model for maintaining integrity in ministry in a messy world, and ultimately leading them to look at Jesus' promises and not Paul's promises. You know, I've said this every week so far, and I'll say it again. Uh, the Corinthian church was a messy church full of messy people in a messy city that desperately needed Jesus. And I love this book because it's raw uh, and real. Uh, it's the book, of, uh, the, the book of 2 Corinthians has greatly shaped me as a person uh, and also the vision of our church. You know, our vision statement as a church is to see Jesus change lives and to reach the world. And in 2 Corinthians, uh, we see so much of this come out. Uh, God transforms lives and God changes lives and then he gives them a purpose. Uh, God takes what is broken and he puts the pieces back together and he makes it beautiful. And today we'll start to see how God takes messy lives and then releases them into God's mission. Uh, But what can't be missed is the process to get there. In many ways, you know, as soon as, become, as soon as we become Christians, we're released into God's mission. Uh, it's both instantaneous and also a lifelong process. You know, the, th- the same thing is true for the Christian life. Uh, like we talked about last week, being transformed as a Christian happens both instantaneous through Jesus uh, while also a lifelong journey. And today we're going to see an important part of this journey that t- turns messy people into missionaries. And part of this journey of transformation that we'll see uh, is growing in forgiveness. Because what can't be missed that we'll see so much of today is that through the gospel, we have been greatly forgiven. If you're a Christian here today, you have been forgiven. You've been forgiven far more than you ever dare dream, realize. If you're not a Christian and you're listening here today, I hope you'll hear that you too have the opportunity to be forgiven far more than you could ever imagine. This is, there is a radical forgiveness that is available for you, for everybody listening. Right, when we think of this idea of forgiveness, you know, we tend to really like it. We love to see movies and we love to read books about forgiveness. Uh, the idea of being forgiven, you know, it kind of really warms our hearts. Uh, stories of forgiveness in movies are the ones that just kind of bring us to tears. You know, I think if we, if things were honest, uh, we love these stories and they warm our hearts because we know that forgiveness is not easy, especially when we're the one wronged. I mean, it's one thing to be forgiven. Like, who doesn't want to be forgiven? Uh, but it's a completely different thing when we're the ones that need to forgive which Paul hits head on today, showing us that forgiven people forgive. You know, harboring bitterness uh, and resentment and hostility will keep our hearts ice cold. It's a great danger that we must all be aware of. I mean, but we naturally ask, right? 
Uh, yeah, but what about that person that spoke, behind, spoke about me behind my back? Or, uh, or what about that person that rejected me? Or, or the group of people that spoke lies about me or lied directly to me or gossiped about me? Or what about the person that stabbed me in the back? Or what about the person that abandoned me or cheated on me or stole from me or that constantly or daily wrongs me or picks on me or shows hate towards me? Or what about the family member or friend or spouse or child or the one you love or coworker or boss or neighbor or teammate or classmate or teacher or professor that you're constantly around that does the same thing over and over and over again and it hurts you and it bothers you and it annoys you over and over and over again because you're around them you have to forgive them over and over and over again and you're just tired of forgiving them what about that person that have some sort of belief or conviction that just angers you forgiveness is hard is it not right it's a hard thing And yet Paul shows us and reminds us that at the heart of the gospel is forgiveness. Those who have been shown radical and daily ongoing forgiveness give radical daily and ongoing forgiveness. Or maybe you've heard it said that those who've been forgiven much are able to then forgive much. And as we'll see, forgiven people don't only display forgiveness, but they also tell others of this forgiveness that has changed and transformed their life. Now, I want to be very upfront with you. Today's going to seem like two completely different sermons. You know, most pastors uh, will preach these two passages that are back-to-back separately because in the first section, we'll see this theme of forgiveness. And on the back half, we're going to see, see this theme of proclaiming the gospel, uh, which leads us to our main idea. God uses forgiven people to display and proclaim the gospel. And so we'll see this whole process of someone who is wronged and needed to forgive someone and then in turn is unleashed with a purpose. Again, God takes takes messy lives and turns them into missionaries. Paul was wronged and has been wronged by his critics and he shows the gospel of Jesus Christ changes him and it warms him. It provides rest and restoration for him and then it unleashes him to, to radically display and proclaim the message that of the gospel that has changed his life. Those that follow Jesus are transformed by Jesus. Right? Those who know God's grace are changed by God's grace. Those who have been forgiven, forgive. So we're going to take, we're going to divide our time very simply today with two turns. Number one, forgiveness displays the gospel. And then number two, forgiven people proclaim the forgiveness found in the gospel. So kind of think of these two two points kind of like a marriage, okay? Uh, Two very different things, like a man and a woman. And then they uh, coming together to become one. Or how about this? Maybe you think of a pizzuki. Um, Like two excellent independent desserts. I love them. This is great. Uh, Like cookies and ice cream. You marry them together. What do you get? A pizzuki. And so we're going to have a gospel pizzuki today, okay? We'll see two, two, two very different themes. And at the end, we're going to see one of the ingredients that marries them together. You know, the first point will come from chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And the second point uh, from chapter 2 is verses 12 to 17. I'm going to read each section separately, uh, give you our point for that section, walk through it, teach a few things, and as we go, make a few application, applications. Uh, and then at the end, we're going to marry them all together. So look at chapter 2, starting in verse 5, where we're going to see the first part of our pizzuki, okay? Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. 
For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forsaken, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So as I said, I want to make a few quick observations here about a few things that, that we learn about forgiveness out of this passage, uh, and then we'll get to our first point, okay? So we know from last week, as he mentioned, that Paul is being criticized uh, for not coming to them, and instead he wrote a letter uh, because of a problem, and we now know that there was an offense, there was an action, something bad happened. Uh, we, don't know what this, we, don't, we don't know what it was, but it seems from verse 5 that it was caused by a man, a single person, a, a, single, a man. It says in verse 5 that he caused it. And Paul says that it didn't, only affect, it didn't only affect Paul, but it affected others as well. He said in verse 5, he says, He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. And as a passing note, this is very true. Our sin, it rarely just affects one person. It often affects multiple people. For example, like when I sin against my wife, it not only affects her, it affects my kids too, and possibly those that are close to her. And then we see in verse 6, we see that there was some sort of punishment or discipline that took place for this man. Paul said in verse 6, for such a one, uh, this punishment by the majority is enough. This man, he was disciplined by the church. He was disciplined by a majority, which is a good and healthy thing. We know from God's word that God disciplines those he loves. Godly discipline is an act of love, not hate. But the hope is that through it, it would lead to repentance. But then Paul comes back and says in verse 6, he has been disciplined enough. Like, uh, this man has likely gone through a process of repentance, and now it's time to forgive the man. Look at verse 7 and 8. Paul says, So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So they disciplined him out of love. He likely repented, and they must now forgive him out of love to comfort him, to see him restored, and to keep him from having excessive sorrow. And I find it interesting, but not a coincidence, that Paul says, so I beg you, to reaffirm your love for him in verse 8. Paul had to beg them to reaffirm their love, to show him grace, to forgive him. Why? Because forgiveness is not easy. It's not easy. It's hard work. It's labor. It's certainly not the easy road. It goes against our natural flesh, especially when you think about what he says in verse 8. He says to reaffirm your love for him. Y'all, this is a big deal. Verse 8 is the fruit of someone who forgives. Forgiveness is not just brushing something aside, sweeping it under the rug, and moving past it. No, forgiveness is an act of love. It's reaffirming your love, like showing someone with your actions that you love them. It's the simple idea, right, that brings two siblings together after they fight when they say they're sorry. They forgive each other, and then they affirm it with with a hug, possibly, So true forgiveness should not leave someone wondering if that person loves you. And remember from last week, the great love chapter of the Bible was written to to this Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 13. And so when Paul says, reaffirm your love for him, Paul knows exactly what this means. He knows that they know what this means. And Paul means, drawing from 1 Corinthians 13, when you forgive someone and reaffirm your love, the fruit of that is that you show patience to them. 
and kindness. You're not rude to them. You're not resentful of them. When you're with them, you don't get irritable. And you endure with them. And let me say, this is really, really hard to do. Especially when you're the one who, that you feel like you've been wronged. Like really, really wronged. And Paul knew this was hard. And so he had to beg them to reaffirm their love to this man. And then Paul says in verse 9, For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. To put it simply, Paul knew that both disciplining this man and forgiving this man was a matter of obedience. They were obedient to discipline him. And now they need to be obedient to forgive him. Listen, forgiving a person, forgiving a brother or sister in Christ that has repentance, repented is a matter of obedience. So if you're harboring bitterness or resentment or you're unwilling to forgive someone, Paul has shown us that this is a matter of obedience. Forgiveness is an act of obedience. Obedient, uh, obedience is hard work, especially this type of obedience. An obedience that requires forgiveness. And then Paul shows in verse 10, hey, guess what? Uh, We're in this together. Look what he says. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Which leads me to say, forgiveness is a community project. Paul forgiving this man spurred on the others to forgive also. They could forgive and Paul could also forgive. So when we're able to forgive, it leads others around us to be able to forgive also. Listen, we say this often. Our lives are contagious. Our attitudes, both good and bad, are contagious. Sin is contagious. Joy is contagious. Thankfulness is contagious. And so is forgiveness. You know, one of the best ways to encourage someone towards forgiveness is to model forgiveness yourself. So let me ask, who do you need to forgive today? What are you harboring that's causing your heart to harden? Y'all, forgiveness is hard, but it's essential. And Paul shows us this in verse 11. He shows us why they need to forgive. He says in verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. (laughs) So Paul, in his loving directness, shows us that a heart that is unwilling to forgive, he shows in verse 12, is being outwitted by Satan. (laughs) Ouch. Like like that stings, right? Uh, I didn't say that. Paul said that. A heart that is unwilling to forgive will grow more cold and more bitter and more resentful, uh, which are some uh, of the enemy's schemes. A cold, bitter, resentful, unforgiving heart does not display the gospel. In fact, it does the exact opposite. And as Paul mentions, as Paul says, may we not be ignorant of Satan's designs, but rather may we be a forgiving people because our first, which leads us to our first point. Number one, forgiveness displays the gospel. Forgiveness displays the gospel and our enemy wants to do everything in his power to keep us from putting on display the incredible love and forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. Because as the gospel tells us, When Jesus came down to this earth, he did it, seeing all of our sin. Jesus saw everything that we've done, knowing fully the depths of our hearts, every wicked deed, every wicked thought that we've ever committed. Brothers and sisters, these were not offenses that we've done only against each other, because when we wrong someone, that's a direct offense against God himself as well. 
Anything we've done that is not right, that is unholy and displays wickedness and evil is an offense to God. And so each one of us has, metaphorically speaking, not only slapped God in the face, but we've also stabbed him in the back over and over and over again. But actually, more, more accurately, we didn't stab him in the back. Our sin against him sent, sent him to the cross to be murdered and killed and crucified, to be lashed and whipped and spat on, to be bruised and beaten and shamed. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ being, by Jesus being murdered on the cross was not only because Roman soldiers and Julius Caesar put him there. It's because he was taking on the sin of the world. It's because he was taking on the punishment for your sin and my sin. He took on all of our shame. He took on all of our punishment and he took it on the cross. And yet in spite of that, and because of his incredible grace and power, Jesus rose from the dead and he, took, he looked at us and others around the world, those who wronged him and sent him to the cross, those who sinned against him, not just metaphorical sin, but like our actual sin, your real sin, my real sin, all of my sin and your sin in the past, present, and future. He took on all of them, paid the penalty for each of them, and then looks at us square in the eye and says, I forgive you. You're forgiven. And as we know, forgiveness is not just sweeping it under the rug and looking past it. No forgiveness, as Paul says in verse 8, God reaffirmed his love for us. Because when we're forgiven by God, we're not just excused of our sin and given a free pass. No, we're brought into the fold of God. We're brought near to God, brought into seeing, knowing, and experiencing his patience towards us, his kindness. God no longer, is no longer angry with us. He's not resentful or irritable towards us. No, he bears with us. He hopes with us. He endures with us. And maybe, best of all, his love towards us never ends. We were once enemies of God, but when we believe in Jesus' finished work on the cross— when we believe that Jesus paid for our sins by going to the cross, dying a criminal's death, and then being raised from the dead, when we believe this in faith, we're no longer enemies of God, but we're brought near to the throne of grace. And we're seated with him as his adopted children. And he stays with us. And he changes us. And he helps us. And he makes us into a new creation. Y'all, this is an astounding grace that is shown to us through Jesus Christ. When God forgives us through Christ, he doesn't just excuse our sin and get over it. No, he reaffirms his love for us and fully forgives us. And when he does this, and when people grasp this daily and regularly remember this, our cold, bitter, and unforgiving hearts, uh, of the hearts of God's people begin to melt and be warmed by God's spirit because the reality of Christianity and the amazing grace of God is that we were once wretched, broken, wicked sinners that deserve not even our next breath, that deserve not a single thing. We deserve to be put into a dungeon forever. Yet because of Christ and the gospel, we've been crowned with his righteousness. Amen, yes. When the people of God get this, when we remember this, we can look at those who have wronged us and say, brother or sister, I forgive you. I forgive you. Because I too am a wretched sinner, because I've done far more wrong than you know. But Jesus Christ forgave me, and by his grace, I know he too forgives you by his grace. And if Jesus forgives you, knowing that this is a community project, I too can forgive you as well. Because listen, as is often said, people who have been forgiven much are able to forgive much. 
And if we are in Christ, we've been forgiven far more than we would ever dare dream realize. So if you're struggling to forgive, if our hearts are cold and filled with bitterness and resentment, instead of continually looking to how we've been wronged, may we rather keep our gaze upon the cross of Jesus Christ and sit and dwell and stand amazed that such a holy and righteous God would save wretched, the wretched sinners that we are, that I am, the more we see the greatness of our own sin and the greatness of God's forgiveness to us, the more our hearts begin to be warmed and to melt which drives us to be able to then extend the same forgiveness that God has shown us. So, brothers and sisters, the more we look to the cross, the more we look to Jesus and the gospel, the more we are then able to display the gospel. And the heart of the gospel, at the heart of what God has done for us, is to forgive us. So let me ask you again, who do we need to forgive today? And may I encourage you, and charge you to not just forgive once, but to forgive over and over and over again. Because God daily and repeatedly forgives you over and over and over again. It's an eternal forgiveness. We could stay and meditate on this for a long while, but there's more. We have a completely different part to our pazuki today (laughs) to look at. And it may seem like a drastic shift, Because we're moving from this idea of forgiveness to now gospel proclamation. And it shouldn't surprise us because this cycle is actually the norm in the Christian life. Because again, God takes the wounded, the wandering, the weary, and the wronged, and he provides rest and revival and restoration through Jesus. And Jesus takes uh, what has transformed their life, and then he unleashes them into God's mission. God takes those whose lives are messy and he makes them missionaries. God uses not those who have it all together, but rather God uses the broken to display God's power and his remarkable grace. And the message of the gospel is a message of forgiveness. Those who have been forgiven much are able to those forgive much and in turn tell those around them of this forgiveness that has changed their life. Which leads us to our second point. Number two. Forgiven people proclaim the forgiveness found in the gospel. You know, this is a common thing that we naturally do in life when our lives are changed by something. You know, when our lives are changed in a positive way, we share it with others. Uh, We're typically not too eager to share the hard things. We love to share the great things, the fun things that we love. For example, when you have a baby, it takes up a lot of your life. So what do you do? What do you talk about? You talk about baby stuff. Or here's another one. You know, I've, I've been in this CrossFit world for a few years, and I get it. Uh, when someone starts to do CrossFit, you know about it really quick. Like, it, it's a bit obnoxious. Um, I was the exact same way. It's like, bro, I, I really don't care that much to hear about your workout. Um, you don't need to tell me about it all the time. Uh, but they love doing it, right? And the same thing is true of sharing our faith and living on mission. Those who have experienced God's forgiveness share with others this same forgiveness. But before we see this theme, Paul first shares a few more of his travel details uh, that I don't want us to just gloss over. Look what he says starting in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So I'll stop there for just a second. Just as a note to explain what's happening, Paul went to Troas to preach the gospel, as it says, to share about this forgiveness that is found in Christ. And he had an opportunity, but his spirit 
was not at rest because Titus, his friend, was not there. To say it another way, Paul was worried about his friend Titus. In fact, we know that this was a pretty common problem for Paul. We know from later in 2 Corinthians that Paul often worried about the churches, all these churches that he planted. And at at this time in his ministry, Paul was really struggling. Maybe even, uh, we would even say he was anxious. Showing yet again this common theme in 2 Corinthians where Paul is at a low point. He's tired and weary, but yet through it, God's power is put on full display. Because look what he says next, starting in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among, them, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. You know, there's New City Church, there's so many rich truths here for us. Because here's Paul struggling, wrestling with forgiveness. He's being for, uh, criticized, and he's anxious about his friend Titus. And he comes in and says in verse 14, but thanks be to God. So Paul is reminding the Corinthian church, yes, life is hard and difficult with so many challenges, but thanks be to God. And what does he thank God for? He says in verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. This is, there, this is a great picture for us to, to imagine. There's actually two illustrations that Paul's using here. The first one, Paul says, Jesus leads us in triumphal procession. And the second illustration, Jesus, Paul speaks of an aroma. He, he, he speaks of a fragrance or a smell. And so we're going to look at both of these, okay? And to, get you, and, and to get you in Paul's head of what he means by a triumphal procession, just simply put, It was a type of victory parade that celebrated victory after a great battle. So imagine this triumphal procession uh, with two horse carriages covered in gold with extravagant ornaments with the general kind of sitting in the front uh, clothed with silver and gold and followed by wagon after wagon uh, carrying all their uh, equipment and maybe even parts of the ships uh, with soldiers cheering and dressed up uh, with their pirates and captives uh, uh, in tow uh, put on full display. All mixed in with musicians and incense burning, uh, burning through the entire parade. Uh, and everyone watching on was kind of cheering, them, cheering on their victory. Maybe if it were today, we might see bubbles and cotton candy and fireworks. Who knows? Right? But uh, this, this was a triumphal procession. But what we need to figure out is why did Paul use this imagery? And, and just to point out, some commentators have disagreed about this, wondering how Paul uh, viewed himself in this imagery. Some have referred to Paul as seeing himself as somewhat of a victorious soldier, uh, where most others would say, and I would agree, Paul sees himself as the prisoner who was captured, making him now a slave to God, which we know is common language that Paul often used to describe himself. And to further the argument uh, that Paul sees himself as the one captured and not the one who is victorious The only other time Paul uses this phrase is in Colossians 2.15 where we see God having captured the rulers of this age. 
And so I think it's fair to say that Paul sees himself as God's captive being led to death in Christ. So that God's power may be put on display through him being, through, through him being the one conquered. And so in this view, Jesus is the one who is celebrated as the victor and Paul is the captive. And then bleeding over into the second picture, the second illustration, Paul speaks of this incense that were burnt into these parades. In these parades, uh, they could often be smelled from miles away. Where Paul then illustrates uh, God's people as this fragrance that is spread. And that said, let me read verse 14 again. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. And so let me rephrase this for us. I think it's fair to say Paul was saying that he was thankful that he is with Christ, being uh, commanded and led by Jesus who is marching in victory, knowing that God has us in our brokenness, that God has us in our weariness, in our hurting, in our sacrificing, and in our seeking to forgive. As Paul says, God uses those who are following Jesus, who claim Jesus as their Lord, to spread the knowledge of who Jesus is. He says in verse 15, Seeing this second illustration further. It says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Don't miss this. Because if you're struggling to forgive, but yet forgiving anyways because of Jesus in your hurt, and yet finding healing in Christ in your troubled spirit, as Paul said he felt, yet finding peace in Jesus. Through all of this, when we make Jesus our victor, the one who's victorious, we live in Jesus' victory and not ours. When we live in, as his slaves in our weakness, yielding to Jesus, when we're God's captives, when we are his slaves through our brokenness and weakness, we become the aroma of Christ. To those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, as it says. Why? Because in our brokenness, in our troubled spirit, in our wounded hearts, when we trust in Jesus as our victorious warrior, it puts Jesus on display. It makes Jesus the sweet aroma that comes out of us. He says we're the aroma of Christ among those who are saved and among those who are perishing. And then he says in verse 16, To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So when we proclaim Jesus in the gospel, and when we put the gospel on display through forgiveness, to those who God saves, it's a fragrance of life. And to those who are perishing, it's a fragrance of death. It's the same gospel message, but with two different outcomes. For one, it's life, but for another, it's death. And to paint the picture for us, Just imagine two people walking into the same room and both people see the same meal sitting on a table and one person smells fried chicken and fresh baked cornbread with green beans and mashed potatoes uh, and maybe a freshly baked chocolate cake. Mm, Sit down and have a feast and it smells delightful and the smell just kind of warms their heart. If you're getting hungry, don't worry. We've got food after the service for you. Uh, it's, it warms their heart, and it puts a smile on their face. While the other person walks in, sees the same thing, but smells burnt cornbread, dirty diapers, rotten eggs, dead carcass, and an angry skunk. And they can't stand it. They can't even stay in the room. It smells so bad. To one, it's the smell of life. 
but to the other is the smell of death. This is how the gospel is portrayed. It either gives the smell of life or it gives the smell of death. And because of this, verse 17 says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We don't peddle God's word as something to be sold. No, we speak with sincerity, knowing that we have been changed by this message of the gospel. We've been changed by this forgiveness that we've received by Christ. Knowing we've been commissioned by God, he says. He says, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. Y'all, how cool is that? God watches us speak of Jesus. <laughs> now, for some, that might make you feel a bit nervous because anybody watching you do anything for some reason makes us nervous. But Paul said at the end of verse 16, which we skipped over, he says, who is sufficient for these things? Like God, who knows Jesus perfectly, is watching us who is insufficient to tell others about Jesus, but yet in spite of that, God has commissioned us, his messy, broken, and weary people, to represent Christ as the aroma of Christ, to be the sweet smell of Jesus to those around us. So we're insufficient, yet God has made us sufficient. And he says, to, and he says to end the chapter, he says, we speak Christ. When we proclaim Jesus, we're putting off a sweet aroma and providing an opportunity for life. And so today, you know, so far we've seen these two seemingly isolated ideas of forgiveness and gospel proclamation. And as we've said, these are both great independent ideas. But as I said, I want to put them together in the last six or seven or eight minutes of our time and make a gospel pazuki. Taking these two great ideas like cookies and ice cream, and we're going to marry them together. Sorry we don't have cookies and ice cream today. I don't think at least. Uh, but because we've seen that, forgiveness displays the gospel. And that forgiven people proclaim the forgiveness found in the gospel. But as I said at the beginning, there's a common ingredient that I want us to see to bring these together. Because there's so, there's so many that we could see that would tie them together, but the ingredient that Paul uses to tie these ideas together is death. And I don't mean physical death. I mean dying to ourselves. As Paul illustrated, being led to die in a triumphal procession as a slave to Jesus Christ with Jesus as the victor, dying to ourselves, recognizing we're slaves to Jesus is the common theme for both forgiveness and gospel proclamation. If you're not a Christian, or maybe you're new to Christianity, and this language just seems confusing, or maybe even kind of weird. Uh, this is a language that Paul, the Apostle Paul often uses, saying in Galatians 2.20, things like, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And then also Jesus said in the Gospels, he tells us to pick up uh, your cross and follow him. To put it simply, just in everyday language, it, it means we're no longer in charge of our life, but rather Jesus is in charge of our life. When we die to ourselves and follow Jesus, we're saying Jesus, we're, we're, we're saying Jesus' desires and preferences are greater than our desires and preferences. And so how do we continually forgive others that have wronged us? How do we daily and continually extend forgiveness? How do we continually put out a sweet aroma of Jesus and tell others about Jesus? The common denominator is dying to ourselves. 
and realizing we've been captured by God, that Jesus is leading us in a triumphal procession, that God has bought us with a price and has brought us with him to use for his purposes. Because when we follow Jesus, we're considered slaves to God, where we're called to put away our pride and our desires and all of our ambitions, and in turn, we take on Jesus' desires and ambitions. And what are Jesus' desires and ambitions for us? They're both to display the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. Jesus desires for our life to be a sweet aroma of the gospel to a world that is perishing. And when we daily and regularly extend forgiveness over and over and over again, which, let's be honest, is really hard, it requires to deny ourselves and to extend forgiveness that Jesus has given us. And when we do this, it's a sweet aroma that pleases the Lord because it puts the gospel on display. And then also when we proclaim the gospel, it too requires us to deny ourselves because let's be honest, to some it will smell like death and we'll reject it, which, makes, which may make us feel uncomfortable. But we also know for others, it will smell like a sweet aroma and bring life. And listen, there's no doubt about it. Being led to die to ourself is hard. But when we know the incredible character and goodness and holiness and majesty and glory of the one who is leading us to death, as we saw in verse 14, we know his intentions. And knowing what he's making us into and knowing the end product and the end goal, when we die to ourselves and count ourselves as captured by God, count ourselves as slaves to God, we soon realize it's the greatest blessing we could ever have because we've been captured by a gracious God, not a wicked ruler. The main application today is not to simply forgive and it's not to simply proclaim the gospel. The main application today is to remember that we're being led to die. That being a follower of Jesus is a continual process of dying to ourselves, a continual process of remembering that we're slaves to God, we're captured by God, that he is the ruler of our life that in turn puts us on the victory parade with Jesus. And as we saw a few weeks ago from Pastor Kent Hughes, that happens through this continual cycle of affliction, death, and resurrection. Because when a messy life full of affliction is led to death in Christ, God then restores them and then too resurrects them. And the byproduct of a messy life that has been resurrected and restored is the power to radically forgive and then also to urgently share with others of this incredible forgiveness that makes makes us God's captive. New City Church, my hope and prayer is that we would be a church that continually puts off the sweet aroma of Jesus by both displaying the gospel and proclaiming the gospel that comes when we lay down our life and die to ourselves. Let's pray. God, you're a gracious God. You're a victorious warrior. Father, we as your people, when we put our trust in you, we become Uh, captured by you. Father, would you rule our life? If there are people in this room, if there are people that are listening or watching online that have not placed their trust in Christ, Father, would they they see the incredible greatness of what it means to to follow Jesus, of how good and how great it is? Father, we love you and we need you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.